College Student Success Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping college students with mental health issues set and achieve goals for themselves to get them where they want to be. I am your host, Derek Malinzak, and this is episode 62 of the podcast. And this, I guess, would then be week two of the semester. So welcome, everybody, to the College Student Success Podcast. Very, 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 very happy to have you on today, uh, have you here listening with us, um, because I have an interview that I have been sitting on for a few weeks that I have been very excited to bring you guys. Um, I really, truly, I say this often, but I truly think this is like literally one of the best interviews I've been able to get so far. Um, really, really happy to bring you um, Dr. Patricia Deegan today on the podcast. And if you are wondering who she is, I'm going to read you a quick little bio. Um, Patricia, Patricia Deegan is an independent consultant who specializes in researching and lecturing on the topic of recovery and the empowerment of people diagnosed with mental illness. Pat is an activist in the disability rights movement and has lived her own journey of recovery after being diagnosed with schizophrenia as a teenager. She is the creator of the Common Ground approach, which includes Common Ground, a web application to support shared decision-making in the psychopharmacology consultation, and the Recovery Library, a collection of recovery-oriented resources aimed at providing the tools, hope, and inspiration to recovery after a diagnosis of mental illness. In addition to being the owner of Pat Deegan, Ph.D. and Associates, uh, Pat is an adjunct professor at Dartmouth College of Medical School, Department of Community and Family Medicine. She works with Bob Drake and friends at the Psychiatric Research Center. Uh, The work focuses on the development of electronic information technologies and shared decision-making as applied to the public sector behavioral health services. And Pat's also an adjunct at Boston University, Sargent College of Health and Rehab Sciences. There she works with Bill Anthony and friends at the Center for Psychiatric Rehabilitation. She saw, uh, lastly, she serves on the editorial board at the Center's Psych Rehab Journal. So that is quite a mouthful and quite a uh, impressive resume. She is a, uh, a rock star in our field of psychiatric rehabilitation, and I'm very happy to bring her on the show today. Welcome to the show, Pat. Okay, I am back, and I am here with Patricia Deegan, uh, and uh, I just wanted to mention before I uh, introduce you, Pat, um, how I kind of ended up having you on the show. First off, thank you for coming on the show, and, and welcome. It's my pleasure. Thanks. Um, so for those of you that do not know, um, I, uh, I've had the pleasure of, of watching some of uh, Pat's videos. There's uh, plenty of them on YouTube and I've played them in a number of my courses that I teach for Rutgers. And I had had somebody, uh, a guest lecturer in on one of my classes recently who is a person in recovery uh, with lived experience that works in uh, a consumer-operated program, uh, you know, a program that is run by uh, people in, in recovery themselves. And, and she brought along this personal medicine worksheet, and I saw at the bottom that you did this, and I thought it was awesome, and I, I can't wait to talk about it with you today. And when I reached out to you about asking for permission to talk about it, I thought, hey, maybe she would want to come on and talk about it herself, and lo and behold, you did. So thank you again. Um, so I was just uh, wondering if you could just maybe talk a little bit about yourself um, 
and talk maybe start out in the beginning um, thinking about this audience is, is college students and mental illness. Um, I'm interested in kind of getting your perspective on um, what it was like in, in that time period for you and, and anything else you'd want to talk about at that time. Uh, sure. So I was first um, diagnosed with schizophrenia when I was 17 years old. I was a senior in high school, and I had a first episode of psychosis at that time. Uh, prior to that, I'd been a really good athlete, and just um, uh, my goal for my future was to um, become a women's athletic coach and basically try to get paid for playing sports. That was my big strategy for my future. I was no student, and I, I didn't care much about college per se at all. I, in fact, was a straight C minus student, and uh, academics was at not at all my thing. Uh, I just kept the grade I needed to continue to play ball, you know. And um, and then uh, all of a sudden, uh, my entire life just you know kind of collapsed out from underneath me, and I um. You know, it took a couple of years from that from that uh, first initial psychosis to um, actually decide that I wanted to um, try to go to school. And in that couple of years, I had had some pretty uh, dramatic experiences. And I think the first was that I, of course, was hospitalized a number of times. And uh, but it wasn't so much the hospitalizations, but it was what I was told by what seemed to me to be really powerful people, you know, my psychiatrist and my treatment team and all the rest. And they basically, and this is sort of a direct quote, they said, Miss Deegan, you have a disease called schizophrenia. And just like a person with diabetes is going to have to take insulin for the rest of their lives, you're going to have to take high dose antipsychotic medications for the rest of your life. Um, really, the only thing you can do is cope. Um, and uh, it was amazing because the impact that that, I call it a prognosis of doom, had on me was profound. It was as if in a single few sentence, uh, my entire future was eclipsed. You know, I knew that on 40 milligrams of haloperidol, there was no way I could play ball. I could hardly stand up. I couldn't even see straight. I had double vision. I was very um, medicated. Uh, and like all of the, these professionals were like thrilled. They thought I was uh, doing great. And I'm like sitting in a chair all day long in my parents' home, smoking cigarettes. Um, and I, I learned to smoke cigarettes, you know, uh, in, in the inpatient unit, picked up the habit um, and uh, had never done it before in my life. And uh, sat in a chair in a cloud of cigarette smoke, staring into the void uh, feeling as if my entire future had been eclipsed. I saw no pathway into the future for myself. No one ever mentioned the word recovery. I was told at discharge to take your meds, take your meds, take your meds five billion times. And I was also told um, to avoid stress. Hmm. And uh, the part that they missed, of course, is the idea that boredom is stressful. Um, and... And I went on like that for months and months and months and months. And it was a pretty, uh, probably one of the lowest points of my entire life because at that point I was disabled by the treatment, not by the disorder, you know, not by the mental health challenge. I was, I was disabled by the treatment. And like I say, the professionals were thrilled because from their vantage point, um, they felt like schizophrenia 
was a chronic progressive disorder and that I would deteriorate into uh, a very bad state over time. So the fact that they had sort of uh, put me into chemical hibernation, mm-hmm. where I couldn't think or speak or, or be active, to them was progress because they had stopped the um, unfolding of, of the disorder. You know, so like, okay, so she's not babbling on about, you know, these, these delusions. But the problem was I wasn't talking about anything. I wasn't thinking about it. I couldn't think, you know. Yeah. So I was pretty disabled uh, by the treatment itself. And I think the turning point and where college came into the picture for me is um, uh, I used to go into the what they call the ambulatory care clinic, which was part of the hospital system that I would be put in when I needed to go inpatient. And um, I remember seeing the doctor, and once again, they gave me this litany of doom about schizophrenia being incurable. And and at that particular meeting, and I don't know why, but I felt something begin to rise up inside of me. It was as, as if there was like an ember. I call it an ember of angry indignation. And I love that term indignation because at the heart of it is the word dignity. And I think a lot of our listeners can, can appreciate that going through the mental health system can leave you f- feeling like you don't have much dignity left. Um, and for me, um, my dignity had been pretty crushed down. But in that appointment that day with that psychiatrist, when he started that litany and that prognosis of doom again, I just felt something rise up inside of me, a small spark. And and inside of me, I was just saying, you're wrong about me. You're wrong. You're wrong. It's not that I lack insight into the fact that I'm ill. It's that you lack insight into the fact that I'm resilient, you know. And, mm-hmm. of course, I didn't dare to say any of that out loud. But I remember leaving the office and just uh, instead of feeling crushed by the prognosis of doom, I felt angry indignation mobilizing me. And I had this thought, and this was exactly the thought that came to me. I am going to become Dr. Deegan, and I am going to change the mental health system so no one ever gets hurt in it again. And, you know, I was all of 18 years old. By then I was diagnosed with chronic undifferentiated schizophrenia. This thought that came to me uh, was, for me, an existential turning point. Now I had something to do with my life. Now I had a reason to start getting off the couch. Now I had to figure out, okay, how am I going to become Dr. Deegan and change the mental health system so no one ever gets hurt in it again? And so um, to make a long story short, you know, I went back and sat on the couch. And from the outside, I probably looked exactly the same to everybody. But inside, a little ember, then a flame was starting to flicker. I was coming back alive. Um, and so, you know, dawn breaks on marble head. It was like, I needed to figure out, all right, so, okay, I'm going to become Dr. Deegan. I guess I'm going to have to go to school. Uh, imagine that. And so, um, you know, I started with a single course, English composition one at my local community college, which was Massasoit community college in uh, Brockton, Massachusetts. And, uh, you know, I, it was once I started going to school, once I had to do something other than sit in that chair and smoke cigarettes, that was a game changer. 
because now I had to figure out how am I going to cope with all of this stuff? You know, how do you how do you sit in a classroom when you're hearing voices and not start talking back to the voices, uh, but somehow just sit there and look at least look kind of normal. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? You know, when you're so drugged up that you, you're having double vision, how do you like read a textbook? Uh, all of a sudden, once I started doing something, I had to start stumbling into, and I, I really do mean stumbling into some way to begin to manage self-care um, and managing coping, figuring these things out. Um, and it was extremely challenging in the early days for me, right? Yeah. I had to figure out, I was so panicked and anxious and so I wasn't learning anything in the classroom. Forget it. I brought a tape recorder with me and I recorded the lectures in hopes of being able to tune in at some other point when in those early, early, uh, days of going to school, my goal was, can I make it through a 50 minute class? And I was just watching the clock and I would say to myself, can I go another minute, literally minute by minute, five minutes by five minutes. Uh, And as long as I knew I had an escape hatch, okay, Pat, I I, I can leave in five minutes, but just five minutes more. And sometimes I did hop out of my chair and leave. And other times I made it to the next five minutes and the next five minutes. And my analogy for it has always had, had been like, um, it was as if I was a, 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 a bodybuilder in training. I needed to build the mental muscle, the, the, the moral fiber, the, the courage, um, you know, and of course courage feels like a whole lot of fear when you're in the midst of it. I had to, to learn that I was not this like uh, burnt out schizophrenic, but that I was like strong that I was, um, you know, I, I could do this. Um, but boy, it took a lot of, lot of effort. So I had extremely low expectations going in for myself. I mean, I had a big goal, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it was a long way off. And I, oh, by the way, I wasn't telling anybody my goal because I don't think I could have survived if someone had said to me, Pat, you know, that's reaching too high. You can't do that. I, I, I didn't have the strength in the beginning. So I kept my goal like a precious, precious secret. Um, I couldn't have survived, I don't think, someone crushing me back down. I was like, um, there's a poet named Theodore Rutke who talks about, um, uh, about flowers trying to come up out of the ground and they rise on lopped limbs to a new life. And I, I felt like I was on those frail, tender, uh, lopped limbs uh, trying to rise. And, um, and it was a day at a time now. Smack dab in the middle of that first course in March, you know, mm-hmm. I went back to the hospital. I relapsed. Um, and, uh, but I'll tell you, I got out of the hospital faster that time than I had ever before because I had something to do. I had to get back to class, you know? And I just remember, I think I was in maybe three weeks that time. And I just remember telling my treatment team, I gotta get out here on Wednesday afternoon because I've got class on Wednesday night, you know? And it was a three hour, 
class on a Wednesday night. And I kept saying, I got to get out. I got to get out. And finally they said, okay, go ahead. We don't advise you to do this. But so they let me out. And I remember standing with my suitcase on the steps of the hospital and saying, I'm going to make it to class tonight. And I showed up at class and, um, this was quite a moment. It felt like this enormous, like I had just climbed Mount Everest, right? And I got to the halfway point of the class and there was a break and the professor came and he said, Pat, you look like hell. Why don't you go home? And oh my God, I just crushed. I just like, I just felt myself collapse inside. Mm-hmm. And I went home and it was, I mean, he was a good man uh, and a great teacher. But that was the wrong thing to say to me. <laughs> what I needed is somebody to say, yes, you're back. Look at what you've accomplished. You're here. You know, you just walked out of a mental hospital and came to school. You go, girl. Uh, but instead, it was like, why don't you go home? You look like hell. And I knew I looked like hell, you know. Um, I challenge anyone to spend three weeks in a mental hospital and not look like hell, you know. Yeah. But the point was I was there. So that kind of crushed me down, and I didn't dare. I crushed again, and I, I didn't dare to go back. Um, the rest of that semester, I did the. I did finish the course over the summer, but again, existentially, I was crushed down. But the next semester, you know, I, I passed, um, even though I was just handing in my homework, and I passed, and I went back the next semester. Try, try again, you know, try again. Yeah. And I did. I tried again. I wasn't given up um but i did have my setbacks and challenges that's for sure yeah i just had to be kind i had to be patient with myself if i had you know i felt like i was getting beat up by the world and the system and and i just needed to be willing to say this is going to take me some time um but eventually i built up my strength yeah i it sounds like it so there's so many things i wanted to pull out of that but the 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 themes that came to me that I noted was like this recurring theme you noticed of like, the goal is not to, to get stressed. You know, we don't want to stress you out now that you have this, this illness. And the, the theme was like sort of re, re, um, reinforced when the instructor saw you there and was like, oh, you know, she, she doesn't look good. You know, we don't want her to be stressed out. And she, he probably thought he was doing the right thing by, by telling yeah. you it would be okay to go home. Um, and the other ideas you, you brought up that, this idea that boredom is stressful and if you're not stressing yourself, you know, you, you tend to end up bored and that ends up more stressful than when, if you actually go out and try something. Um, and this idea that it led to you being disabled by the treatment is, is, is just kind of stood out to me because I, I saw that so much in, in the community mental health settings that I, I worked in prior to, to teaching. And it was just such a, a depressing thing. Um, one thing I just wanted to, to clarify real quick for the listeners, the time period that you were going to school at this time, was this like the, the 80s, 90s? Like what time period would you say? This is the late 70s. Okay. And I, I and only asked. I hope that things had changed a lot by then. You, you <laughs> but hope. Sure they have. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is like I, exactly the same thing. Is there, there may be some inroads made in that maybe you would hear the term recovery now, but in a lot of ways in the me- medical system, not a lot has changed in terms of doctors still telling people that when they, in the same breath, tell them they have a, a, a disorder like schizophrenia. 
Um, so that was a great introduction as to like what was going on at the time when you entered school and what it was like to endure relapse. Um, but you, you kept trying, and I imagine along the way you learned how to cope. And, and one of the things you brought up was the, the tape recorder in a way to, as a way to kind of just cope with getting through class, but at the same time, you know, ensuring your success by, by figuring out a way to deal with it at a later time. Um, what are some other things you learned along the way in college that helped you with your recovery? Well, you know, I was um, out to become Dr. Deegan, right? That mm-hmm. was my goal. Yep. Um, and I'll be honest with you, in the beginning, uh, part of that goal, I also thought that the goal was to get normal. So I was also, you know, I'm figuring I'm going to study all of these advanced psychology books and read all the theories. And and uh, like anybody going into the field, I was trying to heal myself, too. Uh, and honestly, I found that you can have get all the knowledge in the world. And some of it was interesting. I, I was enthralled with it. But, um, you know, what I found out is that the goal of recovery is not to get normal. The goal is to become the unique, never-to-be-repeated, extraordinarily awesome person that I am. You know, each of us are. Mm-hmm. That that is the goal, to be the never-repeated gift that each of us are to the world. Uh, and forget normalcy. I kind of got in the normal club once I had my PhD, and I found out, hey, they're all nuts. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, you know, I thought, oh, professionals don't have issues, you know, and it's mm-hmm. like, oh, yes, they do, <laughs> you know. Uh, so, so, you know, um, you know, that part was a bit of a dead end, the, the quest for normalcy. Um, but other things that I, I learned, I mean, I had to learn a lot about how to manage uh, distressing voices and also learn a lot about um, uh, managing uh, or figuring out how to manage what I called kind of this thought vortex that I would go down and get lost in, right? Uh, so I had this notion that uh, once it got going, it was hard to, to get out of this vortex. So the notion was that somehow people around me weren't really who they looked like. Um, so it sounded like my mother, acted like my mother, but she'd been swapped out for some presence that uh, was not, uh, that was um, evil or something. And, and I learned, um, that if I started down the path of that way of thinking, so I might be in the checkout line, and you know how they have those uh, uh, National Enquirer type uh, magazines at, yep. the, at the grocery store, and mm-hmm. it's like, you know, 90 year old woman gives birth to seven headed baby. <laughs> and I'd be like, really? Oh, you're kidding me. And I'd be like, going, starting down. And I learned, um, I, I, I developed methods for, not a, for disciplining my mind so that I didn't cross the threshold into going down into the thought vortex, I called it, right, and, into uh, being thought disordered, into, you know, that, that there was a point of no return. But so what I did was I would practice reading the newspaper, like the Boston Globe or something. And I would read the newspaper and I would practice skipping the parts that were sensational or that would trigger my my thought vortex. Um, another example is, you know, my best friend was a good old Sony Walkman. I mean, they saved my life. Um, uh, you know, and I'm talking about an analog Sony Walkman <laughs> with an analog tape in it. But uh, gosh, it saved me because what I found out was that when I listened to a favorite 
music on 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 the Sony Walkman with the headset. I um, it distracted me from my voices, and this blew my mind because you know voices come on as being all powerful, all knowing, all seeing, mm-hmm. and then once the Walkman came along. Oh my gosh, there was something I could do that made a difference in my experience of my voices. But the other, so that was huge. That was like my world shifted at that point, you know, because if, if, if I could listen to music and you know, do that, I asked myself, could I listen to a Red Sox game? Uh, and would that work, um, you know, through the Walkman? And anyway, um, I began to develop strategies for managing these experiences. And I remember I was still seeing my doctor and I remember uh, telling him about these things that I was figuring out and he'd never heard of these things. Um, So like I was kind of like educating him in a way, but, um, and then I was very open about, you know, remember one time I nodded off on the city bus trying to get to my class and that's no good. I passed my stop by a couple of stops and, I can't be nodding out and going to classes. So I said, I need my meds reduced. And so slowly but surely, we started reducing my meds. And as, as, as the sedation was leaving me, mental alertness came back. And yes, a few more symptoms came back, but I was working at developing methods for, for managing them, you know. Um, and at the time, you know, there wasn't peer support very much. I mean, there was, the, there was a nascent movement of people. Uh, but I didn't connect with them until a little bit further down the road. So all these things started kind of cohering together and and making, I was making a path for myself. I moved out of my family's home. I moved into a single room occupancy uh, room and, you know, I had a hot plate. And, uh, yeah, I didn't have, I, I, you know, to be honest with you, it took everything I could do to get through a day. And I called... It my my work just getting through the day. Um, you know, I was getting a check. I would, had food stamps. I got a little housing help. You know, I got some Medicaid. Um, but all of this was helping me focus on just getting through the day. That was my work, and 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 the day included taking a class and trying to find a time when I could listen and and do the homework and um, and then. You know, and I've heard other people talk about this, where where studying itself became a whole way of, of coping. I loved what I was learning. I was fascinated by my studies. And slowly, that started gaining some momentum. Um, and people like Ellen Sachs, if you've not read her book, I recommend it. It's called The Center Cannot Hold. Uh, but here's a woman who's a brilliant, active lawyer who lives with all sorts of um, what get called symptoms um, and uh, and is a highly successful, brilliant lawyer at Stanford. And uh, and for her, she tells the story about her school return to school and how studying itself becomes this incredibly healing experience. Because um, I couldn't deal with a lot of noise and I couldn't deal with a lot of friendship. Forget fraternities or sororities or whatever they are that was not the life for me you know I was more like a monk in those early days just quiet is what I needed to concentrate because I couldn't screen out any stimuli you know and I don't know uh studying itself became a whole way of coping and managing I love being in a 
eventually I loved being in a giant quiet library among a stack of books and, you know, just my laptop and working. Yeah. Um, so many like, yeah, it took probably a while to figure that out and get to that point. But, um, you know, I love that you just kept trying and, and, it was funny as you were talking about the things like the Walkman. I was thinking to myself, oh, I wonder if uh, her doctor recommended any of these things. And then it was interesting to hear you say, like, no, I was actually teaching him the things that helped me. Um, yeah. So hopefully he passed that on to others. Um, but it's awesome because you know you worked at it and you you got there, you achieved your goal, and now you are Doctor Deegan, um, and you continue to study mental illness and what is I'm interested to know kind of the the surprising things you've learned over the years through your research that would be particularly interesting for college students to hear that they probably haven't been told by their doctors because they're too busy telling them not to stress out (laughs) exactly so um first of all I just want to say that um you know, in my career and in and, and, and what I do with my life, it really is my vocation. I feel called by a power greater than myself to do the work that I'm doing um, and remain very faithful to that call. Although one thing that did change is when you're 18, you get to think thoughts like I, that I could single-handedly change the mental health system. Uh, and I've learned over time that I alone cannot change the mental health system, that it's going to take us all. Um, and even if our contribution is just being willing to come out to people when we're ready and say, hey, I was considered one of the lost ones, one of the ones who could never recover. Today I'm living my life in recovery. Most people have no clue. Um, and I don't study mental illness. I have no interest in mental illness. What I care about is how do people recover? And probably early on, one of the most startling things that I learned was that half to two-thirds of people diagnosed with serious uh, mental or psychiatric disorders go on to recovery. And recovery does not equal a, or does not, is not the same as living a life free of what gets called symptoms, right? That, um, because uh, the way most medical professionals and most people are trained is they come at it like our job is to obliterate all of your symptoms, your depression, your, you know, hearing voices, we got, we got to get rid of all that stuff. And then you go on with your life. And that's the big uh, thing that I understand is not true. What is true is that we need to begin uh, moving toward our goals, however small the steps are from day one. You don't first get stabilized and wait until you're better and then go after your goals. Our goals are what give our lives meaning and purpose. And so I couldn't, you know, here I am, there I was struggling to get through a single course in English composition one. It's a very humble beginning, but it is a step, right? Yeah. That's what counted. And once I made the step, everything changed. Um, And so what I've learned is that um, uh, we have to be plugged into our goal, to our vocation, to the meaning of our life, to what puts a a smile on our face and joy in our hearts. These are the things that ultimately are healing, uh, that call us forward into a future. And that, in fact, 
half to two-thirds of people diagnosed with disorders go on to live in reco- live lives in recovery and that um, and that that recovery does not necessarily mean that we don't for instance still hear voices because I still hear voices I still hear voices I still struggle sometimes with with um, paralyzing anxiety okay but today I don't think like that's an illness that's like living inside of me and in my brain and ready to take over in me. No, no, no. Uh, you know, I just am so filled with self-wisdom over because of the lived experience. I, you know, lived this stuff um, that I just consider Pat Deegan. This is how I am. It's, it's, I live with certain vulnerabilities. So for instance, I know for a fact if I get on a cross-continental flight, you know, of three to six or 12 hours, I'm going to hear voices. And I hear voices whenever there's like prolonged white noise. And the worst place for me is on an airplane uh, where there are, you know, uh, the, the droning of the jet engine and the forced air coming through the plane. And in that white noise environment, I hear voices. But it doesn't, I don't care. I mean, who cares, right? Because now it's just, oh, here they are. And I know they're coming. And so I come equipped. And, okay, it's not a Walkman anymore. You know, it's it's my iPhone with, with earbuds. Uh, but I still got my playlists in there, and I'm going to use them. Because it's still, it worked back in the early days of my recovery, and it still works today. Um, and I'm not freaked out. I'm not engulfed by the experience. I'm not overwhelmed by the psychosis. I just manage it. So I live with vulnerabilities, but I think I take great solace in knowing that um, everybody else lives with vulnerabilities too, not just those of us with labels. And so, um, you know, I think that's the big news. And the reason it's important is because there is hope for recovery for all of us, not just for a few exceptional superstars. Some people say, oh, but Pat Deegan, you know, you went on and you did this and this, and, and so you're exceptional. Uh, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm incredibly ordinary, um, and I worked hard at my recovery, and I believe that, that uh, if we work hard on our recovery and, and use the tools that are around us, that we can have the lives we want to live. And yes, we may still live with vulnerabilities. And I have friends their recovery is about they don't use medication anymore and they don't uh, uh, experience any sorts of symptoms. Uh, and uh, cool, that's, that's awesome. Uh, that's not my recovery. I, I still experience vulnerabilities, but I just consider it me. And I still use medications as part of my toolbox, if you will, uh, for getting well and staying well. But I also use a heck of a lot of other stuff too to, to get well and to stay well. And there's no shame. Uh, in in um, using meds, it doesn't mean my recovery is less than somebody else's recovery or that I'm weak. You know, I don't buy into any of that. I'm I'm an extreme pragmatist. What works? Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna stick with what works. I uh, I can respect that, and I, I appreciate the the simplicity in your message. There is just like the, what you learned is that people get better, <laughs> and that is. Uh, what people you know need to hear because so much of what they probably hear otherwise is uh, the doom and gloom that you highlighted earlier. Yeah. So I appreciate the clarification though, into you know your research into recovery um, rather than mental illness. So let's talk about some of those things that have come about 
uh, as a result of that. Um, the one thing that I, I discussed a little earlier that kind of turned me on to having you come on the show is this idea of personal medicine. And I'm going to include a link to your personal medicine worksheet in the show notes of today's episode. But I was wondering if you could just kind of talk about it a little bit, how how you came to kind of create this or where it came from and, and how it relates. I'm really going to talk a lot about wellness this semester, I think. And I think this jives well with that. So Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think that when we think of med, if I, if I say the word medicine or the word psychiatric medicine, what immediately comes to mind for most Americans is a, a pharmaceutical, is a pill, a capsule or a needle or whatever. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, but I would argue that uh, medicine, if we take the word and we reclaim it, right, mm-hmm. and we turn to some of the roots of where medicine came from, it came from the people, it came from the village, it came from what we could do together, it came from uh, the healer within us, um, and that, um, so... Uh, I was doing a research study out in the uh, state of Kansas, and I was researching the lived experience of how people actually use psychiatric medicine in recovery. Not how they're supposed to use it, not how it's prescribed, but how do folks actually use it. And this is a great story. I was I was outside of uh, in in a rural area near Wichita, Kansas, and I was in a small farmhouse, and we'll call the guy Joe. And Joe was a person who was living in recovery after a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. And Joe had lost a lot in his life before he was able to um, come to terms uh, with bipolar um, disorder and uh, become an expert in taking care of himself um, uh, and making his recovery. And so I was interviewing him about how he used his psychiatric medications. Um, And Joe said, well, you know, I've got... um, we were sitting at his kitchen table, and he said, of course, he said, I've got, I, I have uh, some mood-stabilizing medicine, and I see my doctor every month and, or every three months, and, um, and yeah, I use that. And, and my doctor also prescribed a little extra Seroquel, so if I need extra sleep at night, I can always take a Seroquel. Because he said, one of the things that happens is that when I'm starting to go into a cycle of mania, I have trouble sleeping, and I know I've got to get sleep, so I'll, I'll use the Seroquel. And then he kind of looks at me, and I said, uh, okay. And he said, but I'm going to tell you something, Pat. There's more things that's medicine than what we think is medicine. And I said, what do you mean by that, Joe? And he said, well, he said, for me, doing math is medicine. And I said, explain, help me understand this. So Joe said that um, when he's starting to feel like mania is setting in, he gets out a book of classic mathematical equations and mathematical problems, and he begins to work them. He begins to work them. And I said, "So, so why do you say this is medicine? And he said, well, he said, because, he said, when the mania is coming on, I feel like it's a train that's going to rip through my life and take me away, and I have no control. He said, but when I sit here and I do my math problems, he said, I realize I'm smart. 
He said, I realize I'm in control. He said, I realize I'm in charge, that I have power. And he said, you know, he said, some might not agree with me. He said, but I'm telling you, Pat, that's medicine. And I said, Joe, you're totally right. The guy blew my mind and he opened my eyes. And I said, Joe, did you ever talk to your psychiatrist about your math medicine? He said, nope. I said, do you ever talk to your therapist or case man? Nope. They never asked me about it. Ah. And it all of a sudden, all of this research I had been doing fell into place because it wasn't just Joe who told me this. Person after person after person living their lives in recovery, were they would tell me about psych meds, but they would also tell me about this other thing they were doing or many other things they were doing. And I began to say, people are using personal medicine. And that the pathway into recovery is not just about what we, the pills we take, it's also about the things we do. And so I, in, in this research, discovered th this personal medicine. And personal medicine, I define as the things that put a smile on our face, the things that bring joy into our lives. Personal medicine are the things that give our lives meaning and that give our lives purpose. And personal medicine are also the things we do that help us to get well and to stay well. They're the things we do, for instance, like my learning to use the Walkman. That was powerful medicine um, that actually uh, was critical to moving forward in my recovery. And so what I say is that for many of us, maybe not all of us, but for many of us, the pathway to recovery is um, defined by finding the balance between what we do, our personal medicine, and the psych meds we may use, right? Finding the right balance. And the thing that went so wrong in my early recovery, right, was that the only message I was getting was that medicine is a pill and you have to take it no matter what the cost. And the truth is, I was given so much antipsychotic medication, it wiped out my personal medicine. <clears throat> my pathway to recovery didn't start until I, me and my doctor began weaning down off of that personal, I mean, off of that pill medicine, and I started kicking in with my personal medicine, that Sony Walkman, that technique of not going into my thought uh, vortex and getting into delusional land, uh, and many, many other tricks of the trade that I've learned over time. But also, the pathway into my recovery was what um, my vocation became, becoming um, Dr. Deegan and changing the mental health system so no one ever gets hurt in it again. And so today, I am living a life in recovery. And I run a, a health technology company where I not only develop things like personal medicine, and I have personal medicine cards, but I have a whole online recovery library filled with recovery wisdom, all about personal medicine and, and other important things I've learned about. And I've developed a web application where people can do shared decision-making with their psychiatrist so they don't get so snowed on medication that they can't uh, think anymore. Um, and so my life has just my recovery, and I think the recovery of many people 
is marked by our personal medicine becoming richer and richer and richer. So in the beginning of my recovery, for instance, everything was one one direction. I people I, I had nothing to give to people. Um, luckily, I had some people who cared about me and could love me, but I had no love to give back in the beginning. I was just trying to get through a day. I, I kind of couldn't stand being near people in the beginning. Today, I mean, I've been I've been married for 25 years now. I have a, a an amazing 20 year old daughter who herself is going to a community college and and overcoming a disability to to make her way in the world, to make her mark on the world. You know, I own a beautiful home. I run a company. I never thought these things would be for me. How awesome is that? You know, <laughs> <laughs> pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, so grateful. Yeah, yeah. That's great. And then I love that story about Joe. It was really uh, impactful. <laughs> um, and then the other thing you mentioned a little bit just now I wanted to talk a little bit more about was uh, shared decision making. Um, if you could just tell the listeners what you mean by that, because that's not actually something I don't think I've covered before. And if somebody hears about it and says, oh, that's great. I would like to do this. How would you, excuse me, how would you suggest people sort of build this into their relationships with their um practitioners yeah so um uh historically there has been the idea that the doctor knows best and that all we need to do in order to get well is to follow medical advice the doctor knows best and in fact um research shows that um in many instances the doctor may know what the science says is best, but the doctor does not always know what's best for me. And that the best treatment decisions are made when we are active and engaged and in a process called shared decision-making with our doctor. So let's take the example of, let's say, antidepressant medications. But we could easily substitute mood stabilizers or antipsychotics uh, into what it is I'm saying. Essentially, all antidepressant medications within a class, for instance, the class of SSRIs or the class of SSNRIs, <clears throat> have the same efficacy, meaning that uh, one SSRI is really, uh, when you look at the data, not any better in terms of its effectiveness than another one. But what is really different between these uh, antidepressant medications are the risks they expose us to. So the risk, for instance, of sexual dysfunction, uh, uh, the risk of um, weight gain, uh, the risk uh, of, uh, especially in younger people, uh, becoming actually suicidal not because of depression, but because of anti-depression medication. Uh, so, so these medications, although their effectiveness is the same, right, pretty much the same, mm -hmm. uh, the risk that they expose us to is different. Now, this is not to say that we shouldn't use antidepressants. I'm, I am all for informed choice. However, the fact is, it is not my doctor's prerogative to say, well, 
I think you should be exposed to the risk of suicidality. Uh, or I think you should be exposed to the risk of sexual dysfunction. Is that really the physician's prerogative, the psychiatrist's prerogative? Or is that a decision, since the effectiveness is essentially the same, is that a preference-sensitive decision? And the truth is it's a preference-sensitive decision. It's a decision that I need a voice and a choice in making. And that's what shared decision-making is about. Shared decision-making is about our doctors putting in front of us um, decision aids which show us the relative effectiveness of these medicines and what science, the latest science says, and also the relative risks related to these meds. Because I might be a person who is like, hey, right now in my life, I am just like not into sex. I'm just trying to stay out of the hospital and I don't care about sexual side effects. Bring it on. <laughs> you know, I just need relief from depression. Okay. And then that same person is moving down the road and six months later, they're not going back to the hospital. They're out of bed and they're back at work. Right? Things have changed. They're doing better. They're moving into recovery. And now there's a little romance going on. Oh, all of a sudden, what made sense for me before doesn't make sense for me now. Now sexual side effects really matter and opens on to a new discussion, a new kind of shared decision-making with my doctor about the risks associated with the meds. So, so that's really what shared decision-making is all about, is um, having a voice in a choice in uh, making the decision about what's the best treatment for me. Technically, we call this an N of one study. You know, all the data we have on medications is is all done on, on large samples of populations. But what's gonna be best for me is a decision I need to have a voice and a choice in making. And shared decision-making is a practice that allows for us to have a voice and a choice. Hmm. Really cool. I appreciate that. And uh, it was something, again, in community mental health, I tried to you know, teach people. It's like, yeah, you actually can say yes or no, you know, or request more info or other options or any of the, all of the above. And you'd be amazed. I think some of the listeners would be amazed to kind of, you know, hear the reactions like, really? Like, I can actually mm -hmm. question the professional? And it's like, yeah, yeah, that's a great empowerment technique. So, <laughs> right. um, yeah, that was great. This has been uh, just a wonderful interview. I really appreciate having you on to discuss all this, Pat. Um, last question, kind of just to sum up um, and, and get your, your wisdom. I was interested to kind of know what advice you would give to college students who may be struggling right now. Uh, to achieve the goals that are really important to them. You, you highlighted a goal that you had that sort of drove your entire recovery process. And, and that's really what, that's really the reason I created this podcast is because I, I share that same vision of how important goals are to recovery. Um, and, and I'm interested to know if you have any advice for the listeners out there that might be struggling to find their way at this point. Yeah, I think that the most important thing of all is, is um, believing, well, well, discovering. Why were you put on this earth? Why are you here? <laughs> What's the unique, never-to-be-repeated gift that you are? Um, you know, it may be um, 
you know, uh, doing mathematics. It may be uh, philosophy. It may be being a great teacher, you know, um, but finding the thing in your life that brings you joy, that brings you meaning, that um, makes your life worth living. These are the basics. These are the most fundamental. And, um, uh, you know, college is not always the pathway to, to uh, sometimes college is about getting a job and our avocation uh, is uh, being a car mechanic or, uh, you know, um, gardening, you know, whatever it might be. But, but finding that, that thing, finding your passion, the thing that matters, um, and uh, I think all the rest follows. Um, I have always said we can't build our recovery around a vacuum, around nothingness. We have to build our recovery around something um, that matters to us. And, and even in the beginning, it can be smaller things. It can be a pet. It can be that, you know, having a cat. Um, I have a couple of dogs myself, you know, and that's cool. That's, that, that is awesome. That is a great way to begin, um, to begin. Um, and, um, and then of course, uh, beginning, you, you know, if we sit in the chair and continue to contemplate and contemplate, uh, and thinking, you know, uh, that we have to have it just right. The truth is we'll do course corrections all the way through college, um, all the way through, um, life. And that's fine. You don't have to get it right from the get-go, but what we have to get going. It's a giddy-up time. Come on, we gotta, we gotta take some steps um, because we won't know the, the fiber of who we are as human beings and the strength of our hope and our tenacity. And that's that's the big myth about us. I can't stand when people say oh, the, the mentally ill they suffer from mental illness. Heck no, we don't sit around suffering. That's not what it's about. You know, we do so much more than suffer. Not that we don't have pain, because I know that we do. And we know what it mean, what anguish means. But uh, we're tenacious people. We are strong people. I dare anybody to walk in our shoes and get through a day. You know what I'm saying? So what I'm saying is that we are strong and vibrant and tenacious. And that um, we can uh, get through a course. And we can... Um, find a path for ourselves. And uh, uh, I think I have enormous uh, faith. And college isn't right for everybody. It's okay. You know, there are a whole lot of other ways uh, to move forward in life and, and achieve in life. But if college is your thing and you're, you know, striving after that degree, whether it's a certificate, an associate, a bachelor's, a master's, a PhD, you know, the thing is, um, finding your passion and and following it. Um, and whether or not there's a job at the end of the rainbow in, in the exact field of philosophy, you know, maybe there will be, maybe there won't be, you know. Life's kind of cool the way it, it unfolds uh, with, and, and, you know, that old saying, a door closes, another opens. I know it's a cliche, but I also know it's really true. Um, and uh, part of the... the, the uh, Wisdom is, is being willing to wait and to see um, if something's not working out, where is that other door opening and being willing to, to discern that and listen for it. Um, and uh, I have to say that these days more than ever, the uh, opportunity for peer support is unlimited. We uh, have peers, we have communities of people 
whether it's the Icarus Project or whether it's um, CSP of New Jersey. I mean, I, there are so many people who are out now um, and who are letting us know that recovery is real and who are willing to meet with us any time or day or night and, and share their experience, strength, and hope. I mean, we've got amazing peers out there, and we don't have to go it alone. Um, you know, sometimes I tell my story, and I think because I am a solitary person a lot, I make it sound like no one helped. But eventually I did discover the peer movement and did plug into uh, various kinds of campus supports uh, to help me with my recovery. Um, I think these days I'm hearing um, some stuff that's a little disheartening around if people relapse while in school and then use Office of Disability to come back. I've heard stories of people, you know, being asked not to return because yeah. I think um, I think, but that's a whole other podcast. And, <laughs> you know, to me, that's a direct violation of the ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act. But I know that that's to some extent going on out there, although I would imagine Rutgers is really different because of the awesome department that Derek and others are working in. We but, try. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I've heard the same things in other schools as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, and the, la- the, the thing I took away is, just something as an, as an instructor, I, I probably comment on when grading papers more than anything is every student that I teach wants to paint this picture of people, quote unquote, struggling with mental illness. And I always correct it. And I always say, you know, you this is this language matters. And, and you, you assume in this case that everybody struggles. And the fact of the matter is that that that's not the case. Um, right. So I was glad to hear you say that because it's like, I get tired of writing it sometimes. <laughs> but, um, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, really appreciate. It. I think you know, just gave gave so much value to the to the people listening and and, and those that might be uh, you know looking for you know what that next step is when it comes to goal setting and and coping strategies. Where can people learn more about your work uh, online? Um, you can check out my website patdegan.com. Okay. Um, and also, I'd encourage you to check out my recovery library. It's a subscription thing, five bucks a month. I don't think it'll break anybody's bank, um, but it's pretty awesome and tons of recovery wisdom. Um, and um, if you, if you can't afford five bucks a month, we do we offer um, like scholarships to to the library. So check that out too. Okay. Thank you. Awesome resource. I appreciate okay. it. Thank you again, Pat. Take care. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Bye bye, Darren. Bye. Okay, uh, we are back, and I hope you were as uh, inspired by that interview as I have been for the past few weeks. Uh, so, um, no, this is a run long for a podcast uh, today. Uh, so, I did want to talk about your home exercise real quick. I am going to be including a link in the show notes today to Dr. Deegan's personal medicine worksheet, and the goal would be to uh, work on that. Um, so when we talk about personal medicine, we're not talking about psychiatric medicine prescribed by a doctor, and we're not talking about over-the-counter medicine, pills, vitamins, herbal remedies, or street drugs. Personal medicine is about the things that you do, not something you take. Personal medicine is personal. It's the things you do to help you feel good about yourself and your life. Just like mental health medicine, personal medicine has an essential active ingredient, the thing that makes it work for you. 
For example, a walk in the park may help you feel connected to nature and improve your mood. So walking in the park is personal medicine and connecting with nature and the improved mood is how it helps you. That's the active ingredient. Uh, so this worksheet is intended to help you identify your personal medicine and how it helps your mental health and physical health recovery. Uh, so I'm including that. It's a PDF. And um, I, was a, I, di I did the form. I completed it. This was uh, basically how I um, got you know, talking with Pat Deegan um, because I had uh, a guest come into one of my classes at the end of the semester last year. And they brought this, and I was really impressed with it. She did it as an activity uh, with my students, and, and I was like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna see if I could use this for the podcast." And it led to that amazing interview. So, thank you so much, Pat, for coming on the uh, show today. Thank you to everybody else for listening. Please, if you can, share this podcast uh, with somebody that you think may benefit from hearing Pat's story. Uh, I, I would love to, you know get more people involved and in, in kind of setting goals for themselves. So uh, have a great one uh, this upcoming week. You know, see if you could fine tune that goal that you said. I'm going to come back next week and talk a little bit more about my goal and where I think I see it, you know, shaping up for the semester uh, and complete that personal medicine worksheet. I think you'll find it. I think you'll find it very helpful. And with that, uh, have a great week, everyone. Peace. Come gather around people wherever you roll. And admit that the waters around you have grown And accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone If your time to you is worth saving Then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone For the times they are a change